I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John. We're in chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 27 this morning. And as it is our custom, uh, we would like you to stand as we read God's Word, the passage, which is John 11, verses 17 through 27. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God... God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world, and God's people said, thank you. Please be seated. Last week we started uh, by referencing uh, one of the great Christmas songs, Adeste Fidelis, O Come All Ye Faithful, and it's a song that uh, is a call for those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, those who are believers in Him, to come, O come, let us adore Him, O come, let us adore Him. It's a call to believers. It's a call of faith. Um, This week, our theme is hope, somewhat related to faith. And another great Christmas song speaks to hope. There are actually very many that do. But O come, O come, Emmanuel is, like uh, Natalie mentioned, Emmanuel is the is the idea of God with us. God has come to earth in the form of the flesh. The second person in the Trinity came and became one of us to relate to us, to die for us, to rise from the dead. And the lyrics are these, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Mourning taking place in Israel at the time. They're looking forward the, the baby has not been born. The Messiah has not yet come. And they're calling the Messiah, Emmanuel, to come. Very similar to the scene that we're looking at today, the second panel of the story of Lazarus, where we have a city in mourning, a family in mourning, and they're lying in wait for something to happen, for hope to arrive. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Then the mourning is over. The sadness is gone. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. As they were looking forward to the first coming of Christ and Emmanuel coming, the the baby born in a manger, we are looking forward to his second advent. He has arrived the first time. We can sing, O come, let us adore him. But he's coming a second time, and we can still sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a call of hope, hope. The relationship between faith and hope are very, very close to one another. 
Hope is in some ways the object of faith because we don't just have faith in faith. Um, some people do. I have faith that something will happen. Well, that's not really faith. Even faith in Jesus has to be more than just say, I, I believe in Jesus. It's, it's who is he? What did he do? Why do you believe in him? What did he accomplish? And what he accomplished, our, our, our faith is, is, is looking forward to the hope of what he has brought, bought for us. Uh, Hebrews 11, you know this verse, a uh, very common one about faith, but it helps us to understand hope as well. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of, of things, of something that we're looking forward to. Faith is believing that God will come through on what he has promised. For the convi- it is a conviction of things not seen. We haven't seen these things. We don't know what heaven looks like. We haven't been there. We don't know what our resurrection is going to be. But we hope for those things in faith. We trust dearly and we have a conviction in God that he will bring it about. Hope is looking forward with confidence. You probably heard the definition many times. Hope is confident expectation. It is looking forward with confidence that what is expected will be fulfilled. Come, thou long-expected one. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We expect him. He is our hope. And by faith we believe that it will be realized. Back in the early 2000s, there was a business book, the title of which was Hope is Not a Strategy. And of course it's not a strategy when you define it that way, like, I hope I get a million bucks for Christmas. That's not hope. That's wishful thinking. And that's the way most people define hope. It's some wishful thinking that something we want something to happen in the future, but it's uncertain that it will. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the certainty that what is promised will happen, and we look forward with hope. Faith has that object. So just as in the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Jesus is our hope, and Emmanuel comes to Bethany, comes to this little town, a place of mourning, to a family of mourning. So what we'll see first of all in verses 17 through 19 is that hope arrives when all seems lost. When all seems lost, God arrives, he shows up, comes into our lives, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as we mourn in this little town and these people in this family, we're mourning the loss of Lazarus and hope arrives. Jesus is hope. He arrives in Bethany in the same way that he arrived at Bethlehem. Bethlehem was representative of the nation of Israel mourning for the expected one And here we have Bethany mourning for one who was lost. And hope arrives, hope shows up. Christmas comes to Bethany just as Christmas came to Bethlehem. And Christmas arrives, this hope arrives just at the right time, at a time of great mourning. Verses 17 through 19 say this. So when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had been already in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. As we saw last week, Jesus hears of the illness of Lazarus, and he intentionally delays. He knows what he's going to do. And even before he leaves town, he, he by his own 
uh, omniscience, he, he realizes that Lazarus has died, and he knew that he would. And so four days have passed that he's been in the tomb, and Jesus is on his way to town here. Hope is coming into the midst of this. Um, these verses seem to just kind of give us a setting, uh, but I think they tell us much more than that, and it's important to understand the, the culture of death and mourning at the time that this happened. Um, when someone died at this particular time, and it's, it's still fairly true in some places in the Middle East, but uh, burial happened the day of death. Uh, they didn't mess around, uh, many reasons for that. <clears throat> but uh, a person would be buried right away, and so was Lazarus. And then there were um, 30, 40 days of, of mourning. The first seven days were called intense mourning. And during those seven days, people came and would visit. And the people that were mourning, they sat down the whole time. They didn't put on any shoes. They didn't wash their face. They didn't anoint themselves with oil. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't do any business. It was a time to just mourn. Boy, we, we've kind of lost that, I think, uh, in, our, in our culture. People want to just get right back to it. It's, it's healthy to spend some time mourning. But uh, some of the rabbis taught this, and the Bible doesn't teach this, you understand, and Jesus didn't believe this, but some of the rabbis taught that when a, when a person died, that the spirit would hover over the body for three days, hoping and waiting to go back into the body. But then on the fourth day, as the spirit looks down on the face of this body, and they see that it is beginning to deteriorate, I'm out of here, and they leave. And that's what the rabbis taught. It's, it's superstitious, I know. But Jesus is going to dispel any superstitions that people have. I think there's a reason that he waits four days. Because there's no hope after four days of any kind of resuscitation. Um, it's not going to be something that, could, that so people could say, well, the spirit just came back after, after three days or two and a half days. No opportunity for that. But this also represents to us that uh, this story actually happened. It, it is represented in the details of the story, the four days, the distance of Bethany to Jerusalem. Um, these things are, are details that are, would not really be necessary if this didn't really happen. You see, some people, uh, some scholars believe, of course, that this is uh, it's a, it's an analogy, it's an allegory, it's a parable, it's just a spiritual story, but it didn't really happen because people don't really raise from the dead. Now, do they? So those who have an anti-supernatural bias read into this with just a spiritual story. Well, it really happened. And if God exists, as we often say, then miracles are possible. And if God exists as he has created, as he has, uh, as he has demonstrated who he is and revealed himself to us, not only are miracles possible, but even raising people from the dead is possible. And we know from the rest of the story, the Pharisees believe that it really happened because they want to kill Lazarus again. And they want to kill Jesus. So the story really happened. But also, not only did it really happen, but it was a miracle. Thus the four days. Not just something that happened historically, but it also tells us that this as we read it in John's gospel, is a true bona fide miracle. In fact, it's probably one of the greatest miracles besides Jesus rising from the dead himself. Three other, uh, there are two other uh, raisings of the dead, um, uh, the uh, uh, Jairus' daughter and the, the widow's son. And so there, there are a couple of others, but this one of all, because he was dead for so long, this is the, the greatest 
in the, the greatest and miraculous of all. But you, you see, there's a time, it's a miracle because there's a time when um, a heart stops beating and a body stops breathing that is irre- irreversible. Death is irreversible. I mean, we hear all the time of people who say, well, yeah, I, was on, I had an operation and I died on the, ho- on the operating table three times. No, you didn't die three times. Your heart stopped beating and you were resuscitated three times, but you didn't die. Death is irreversible. Death is when that time comes that your heart cannot be stopped, started again, when you cannot breathe again, where you cannot come back. That's clinical death and it's biblical death too. In fact, the scriptures tell us it is appointed for man to die once and then comes ju- judgment. So, we don't really know and understand exactly where Lazarus was during these four days, maybe in Sheol. We don't know. But he wasn't visiting heaven and talking to Jesus and doing, you know, talking to God. And some of these stories where people said they died and they went to heaven, those are false stories, I believe. I don't know what happens, but they're false. Because this is what I do know. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The judgment comes at the resurrection, which we're talking about here. After Jesus raises uh, those who are believers and those who are unbelievers, there is judgment, some to everlasting uh, torment and those to everlasting life. But there is a time where nothing can be done to bring someone back from the dead, and that's Exactly the point of the details of the story that this is irreversible except by some miracle of God. Another thing that we see is that Jesus risks his life. He comes all the way near Jerusalem. Remember we saw a couple weeks ago, why did he leave Jerusalem? Because they wanted to kill him and they said that they were going to kill him. And he comes near Jerusalem, a 30-minute walk away from Jerusalem. Why? Because he loves these people and they loved him. He's devoted to his friends, and he came to perform probably the greatest of his miracles. Notice that it says Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Uh, think about that, two miles, it's a 30, 40, 45-minute walk. This was, was accessible. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary. It means that they were popular, they were prominent, they may have been well-to-do. There's no mention of Lazarus having a wife, Martha and Mary having husbands. They might have been three um, elder, um, we don't know how old they were, but maybe just um, brother and two sisters who all lived together. Uh, Martha, probably the oldest. They may have been people of means. We don't know. But we do know that they were prominent and they were well-loved. People were walking and coming to console them in their time of grief. Here's a lesson, even though it's just a setting. Christ enters into the darkest days to give us hope. He came to this place of mourning, this town of mourning, this family, this house of mourning to bring hope. That's what he does. These are hopeless days I think we live in. And these are dark days, aren't they, that we live in. But Emmanuel has come. The long-expected one has come into our lives to give us hope. In Romans, it says this in chapter 8, uh, creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. All of creation is groaning for the hope of things to be fixed, 
for the brokenness to be put back together. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. That's our hope. The redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance and we eagerly await it. That's hope. We haven't seen heaven. We haven't seen the new Jerusalem. We haven't seen our resurrection bodies. We haven't seen Christ raised from the dead. There are all these things we believe, but we eagerly expect it and we await it with hope. One day, hope will be realized. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is is love. In heaven, there's no need for hope anymore, right? It's realized. In heaven, there's no need for, for faith. I believe that Jesus is coming back. No, he came back. The only thing that remains of those three is love. But in the meantime, we hope for what is promised. See, there's no need for hope when all is well, when all is right. But when all seems lost, that's when hope shows up. That's when hope comes. If we recognize him and embrace him as our hope. The hope of Christmas is not that you will get uh, the drill or the doll or the dollars that you hope for, but that the baby born in a manger came to dispel the darkness, the despair, the disease that is around us, the death that is around us, death itself, and he does. Christmas is the answer when all seems lost because it's about hope, the hope of Christ. Nevertheless, hope struggles in the midst of despair. In verses 20 through 24, uh, we don't always get it right, do we? Yes, we, <clears throat> we believe these things and we eagerly await them, but in the midst of despair, we falter. In the midst of despair, we struggle with our faith and with our hope, right? Do you ever struggle? We all do. I don't, God, it doesn't make sense. It's not adding up. How long is this going to go on? Are you going to show up? Where were you? Where are you? And hope struggles in the midst of these times of despair. Are these times of despair? Yes, they are. Verse 20 says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha and Mary seen at their best here. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. You know the story of Martha and Mary from the book of Luke. Martha was a doer. She was an administrator. She liked to be busy doing things, getting things done, making sure that everything was just right. Take action, a get-it-done kind of person. That's laudable. That's nothing that uh, was a problem. Mary is the one who sat at Jesus' feet. We might say that she was more emotional and more just hearts and flowers or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. And Jesus actually lauds both of them. But uh, it's interesting that Mary is, sitting, is staying in the house. It's the same form of the word that, uh, in, in Luke 10 where it says that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But it's an intensified form of it. It means she's sitting because of her grief. Here's Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. 
As they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus and his entourage, they entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Thus she was probably the oldest. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the feet, at the Lord's feet. The same word that is used as she was stayed in the house in John 11. Listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Does it sound harsh? It is a bit, isn't it? In fact, somehow she even blames Jesus, right? You ever blame God? For the things that come into your life? The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're so worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The key to understanding this is that Jesus was only on the earth, in this house, in this situation, while he was in his human body. There wasn't one opportunity for for someone to sit at the feet of the incarnate God and listen to him talk. And Martha was worried about scones and tea and whatever and I don't know what. Mary comes out better in this, in this sense. Back in chapter 11 of John, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Some commentators say, well, she, she's just uh, totally logical and unemotional. And she's just telling the truth here. And what she says is true. Had the Lord been there, he would not have died. But I think we need to think about uh, what is going on in Martha's life at this time. I think those scholars who read this have never been in pastoral ministry. <laughs> I've never experienced grief and knowing what uh, even logical people go through who are seemingly unemotional and in the throes of grief. And this woman was. Uh, she's already demonstrated that she is uh, quite capable of emotion because she was indignant at Jesus and at her sister. So, yeah, she, she's in grief. And I think she's struggling with her hope. Uh, it, we, we don't know her inflection. Uh, she could be just saying it evenly, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or she could be saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know. I can tell you this. She was in grief. I don't know how she felt. Was she sad? Was she hurt? Was she frustrated? Did she feel let down? Angry? Did she feel guilty? Uh, back in the 60s, uh, there was a landmark book written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross called On uh, Death and Dying, in which she laid out the five stages of grief, and she was a uh, Swiss uh, psychologist, I believe, psychiatrist. And, you know, like all academics do, they lay things out in some kind of sequential order. And I think some in some segments today, people talk about seven stages of grief. And, and that's a typical Western way of looking at things. You know, you, we look at it in a linear fashion. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. In the, in the Eastern world where Jesus lived, in, in the East, uh, people looked at it like this. Not like this, but like this. And so it may happen all at once. And anybody who has been around people who have grieved or grieved themselves, you, you can be angry and frustrated and hurt and guilty and all those things all at once. All at once. They don't always come in grief, in, in stages. Maybe she 
blame Jesus. Uh, she blamed him before for Mary's uh, uh, not paying attention. I don't know that she did, but it's possible. Um, could she have felt guilty? Man, if I only had sent word to Jesus earlier because, you know, he was looking a little peaked last Wednesday and uh, I thought it was serious. And he, Lazarus kept saying, no, no, I'm feeling fine. If I'd only sent word sooner, maybe feeling guilty. Yeah, people do that. I've spent many times in emergency rooms, across kitchen tables and living rooms. And people have had loved ones die tragically. And they're all the what ifs. What if I got a second opinion? What if I had gotten that mammogram back when I thought I was supposed to or I should have? What if, I, what if she, had, she was going out the door and she forgot her phone and she pulling down the driveway and she remembered her phone, went back in the house and grabbed her phone? If she just grabbed her phone the first time, then maybe she would not have been hit by a car. All sorts of things like that happen, run through people's minds, all the what ifs, what if, what if, what if. And we, I can't tell you how many people over the years have said to me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit down with Jesus and I'm going to ask him why. Right? Have you ever felt that way? I'm going to ask him why all these things happen. I'm not so sure it's going to work that way. <laughs> I really think it's going to be more like when we come into his presence and we see his face and all of his glory, we're just going to go, no further questions. I get it. Otherwise, what's it going to be like? Jesus is sitting by the river of life and, and you've got this queue of two billion people who all have the same question, you know. And he said, okay, we've been here 10,000 years. Let's gather again tomorrow and we'll pick it up. And, and he, the next person, why did my brother, why did my baby, why did my dog, you know, everybody has the same question. Oh. <laughs> it's not going to be like that. He will tell us things, yes. He will fill in things that we we, we need to know, but I think many of it will be instantaneous. But there is something different here with Martha. She has uh, and exhibits a rare kind of faith. She says, even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She believes in him. She has seen enough of the signs. She has heard enough of his teachings. In fact, her statement in verse 21 is different from ours. We might say, if only uh, she had left a few minutes earlier, maybe this would not have happened. Her statement is one of certainty. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's true. It's a statement of certainty. If Jesus had been there, been there he would have healed Lazarus. Even now, she, she says, because of your relationship with the Father, I know whatever you ask of him, he will do it. Regardless, we see that she has a faith that, that sees into the future. This is almost the definition of hope. Hope looks forward with faith. And there comes a time when faith and hope are fulfilled, but right now she needs hope and she's struggling to understand, as all of us would, and it's okay. Still, she has an unmitigated, unqualified, absolute trust in Jesus and also in his relationship with the Father, she knows undeniably that even in the face of contrary apparent facts, God is with her and God can do anything. A couple of lessons from this section, these two verses. Be patient. 
with those whose faith and hope waver in the midst of despair. Yours will at some time. I, I can assure you it will. Don't hold people to a higher standard. Uh, when people are in the throes of, of grief, um, they're struggling with their faith and they're struggling with their hope. And they will say stupid things and they will do dumb things. And, and we, we need to be gentle with them. We can correct them and call them out, but we need to be very, very careful because grief and despair affect people differently. Martha and Mary are going to be a, a, a case studies in that. But be patient with people because they're struggling with their hope because sometimes all seems to be lost. Second of all, it is okay to express honest frustrations Disappointments with God, but always in a controlled and respectful way. I think that's honesty. Read some of the stupidest things over the years where, you know, it's okay to be honest with God and tell him that he's wrong and swear at him and throw things at him. Don't, no, that's not what we're talking about here. And don't take this for me to be saying to you, it's okay to be angry with God. No. It's okay to... Say you don't understand. It's okay to be honest, and we should all be honest with him when we have questions, but always in a controlled and respectful way. But the other side of it is if we're really upset and we don't understand something, we come to God and we just say, Oh, God, I just trust in you when we don't. I just believe in you when we don't. That's not honesty either. Jesus said to her in verses 23 and 24, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. As as is so often in the case of uh, John's gospel, uh, when Jesus speaks, he's not just saying one thing. He has has more than one meaning. Obviously, um, he's not going to tell her and hasn't told her and will not tell anyone what he's going to do. We know the story. We can look ahead another page. And he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he says, your brother will rise again, that's not how she understands it. She's not understanding resurrection now, bringing him back to life. She believes in the ultimate resurrection. She said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The last day. Those of you who have studied Bible prophecy and you've heard it called eschatology, it comes from this word, the last, eschatos, eschaton. The eschaton is the end time, the the day of the Lord when the Lord comes. It's not a 24-hour period, but it's a whole time of the consummation of all things when the Lord comes back, and it's the eschaton. And she understands this. She's very well developed theologically and understands the resurrection that in the eschaton, in the last days... The Lord will come back and he will raise people from the dead. And she has hope in that. She believes in that. But Jesus is drawing out her faith. He's not telling her everything just yet. He's leading her somewhere. He's sharpening her awareness of what's happening and the expansive nature of his ministry and his person and his power and the depths of what faith and hope can accomplish. She gives this statement of faith but still, it still could be something like, like, I know I'll see him again and he'll rise from the dead, but what about now? What about now? I hurt today. The grief is too much. But she responds, 
I will see him on the last day. This last week, you know that Larry Ressler passed away, and in talking to to Sharon, it was just so heartening to see her faith in, in Christ, that she knows where her husband is. I mean, even before he, he passed from this earth, she goes, I, I know where he's going. I know that he's in, in, in the Lord's hands and everything is going to be okay. That's faith. That is hope. And Martha is there just with, right where Sharon is, experiencing the same kind of grief, struggling to understand, yes, but still believing in the truth. In fact, hers is a settled knowledge. She says, I know that I will see him. I know. And it's not some trite statement like, well, he's gone to a better place. No. He, we know where he is. She, she has this conviction that, that he is with the Lord and is coming back. Two lessons. In these times of despair... Trust in what you know rather than what you don't know. Are these times of despair? If you don't understand it, you haven't been paying attention. Um, we're all tired of it, right? It is so tiring. It's despairing. Hope comes when all seems lost. Hope struggles in times of despair. But in times of despair, like Martha... She spoke the bedrock truth. Martha did. She, uh, you've heard me give this lesson many times before, and I think we just need to be reminded of it. The next one that's coming up is, is, is also one that I give to you many times. But we have to focus on what we know. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing what you know. All things work together for good to those who love God. We know that. We know that all things work together for God. This is an unusual Christmas. But what do you know? Are you focusing on what you know or what you don't know? I think too often, fear means we're focusing on what we don't know, right? Uh, right now, where is the truth? It's hard to know what the truth is. Uh, Pilate had a right. What is truth? Where is the truth today? Is it found in CNN? Is it found in Fox News? Is it found in the Democrats, the Republicans, uh, uh, the uh, CDC? It's hard to know what is true these days, isn't it? So focus on what you know. What do you know? This is the bedrock truth of what we know. So that we don't need to despair. Why would we? Regardless of what happens, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Whatever happens, we focus on what we know. Second of all, our hope is beyond anything in this life because everything in this life will ultimately disappoint. This is another lesson I've given to you before and I will from time to time remind you. Our hope that we have in Christ is beyond anything in this life because everything in this life will ultimately disappoint you. Is your hope in Dr. Fauci? Is your hope in Donald Trump? Is your hope in Joe Biden? Is your hope in medical science? Good luck with all that. That is not our hope. If you're placing your hope in any of those things, 
I'm sorry for you. I'm encouraging you to not. Our hope is in Christ himself and our hope is eternal. It is promised. But everything, everything, and I said everything in this life will ultimately disappoint in some way. Your husband will disappoint you. Your wife, your child, your job, your help, your Christmas presents will all fall short. If you hope for a stingray one day and you don't get it, I bring that up every year. Do I sound bitter about that? (laughs) God has a purpose in saying no. To train us toward eternity. None of those things that we hope for for Christmas, none of them can ever come close to fulfilling the deepest longings of your heart because the deepest longings of your heart are eternal and cannot be satisfied by Christmas presents. You've seen the Christmas commercial every year. We see it. I love it. You can predict it. The husband and the wife standing in the kitchen, this well-appointed kitchen, he says, honey, come outside. I've got a special present for you. They walk out in the driveway, and there's a brand-new car with a red bowl. We've all had that happen, right? I mean, you can, you can relate. I can't relate. But then she says, and i got one for you, honey, on the other driveway, right? Uh, maybe some of you have had that happen, but... Um, how would that be? Oh, would that be the ultimate? Would you be fulfilled in all of life? If you, would you be satisfied? You know what? It's gonna, it's, yeah, contact your Lexus dealer today. In two years, it's a used car. It's a used car. The same for your socks and your sweater and your salad shooter and your Ninja Air Fryer. What happens to all that stuff? Goodwill, yard sale, even the Lexus, it's in the junkyard one day. Your game console, whatever you're hoping for. And so we hope for next Christmas for something else. And it comes again and it comes again and it comes again. We need to get it right in terms of what we're hoping for at Christmas. It's not presents. It is the hope that he gives to us. So hope arrives when all seems lost in the middle of grief and despair and sin, the world we live in. And hope struggles. We all struggle. We do. But we have something to hold on to. And in the last few verses, we see that hope is fulfilled. Hope comes to pass. And the promised one Hope is the answer to grief. Hope is the answer to despair. Hope is in Him. It is in the person of Jesus. It's not in a thing. It's not in a state. It's not in a circumstance. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? One writer said, these words are the central point of history. Think about that. Indeed they are. If they are not true, then we are of all people to be pitied, right? But if they are true, it is, uh, we're, we're good. We're okay. We have hope. Everything is going to be fine. Everything will be made right. We have something to look forward to. 
and we will be fulfilled ultimately in him. To her words of confidence that Lazarus will be raised from the dead, Jesus responds with, I am the resurrection and the life. We've seen so far in the book of John, he's, he said, God gave me uh, those to whom I will raise, and I won't lose any of them. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, he said it several times. He has the task given him from, from the Father to raise people from the dead. But here he's not talking about the act of raising. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is found in him by believing in him. See, once again we see Jesus is standing with open arms, welcoming anyone who will believe in him. The one who believes in me, everyone who believes in me, they will have eternal life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies, like Lazarus. The one who believes in Jesus Christ, even when we die, we're going to come back to life. That is the hope that we have. That's the hope that he's giving, given. When we place our faith in him, we are so united and, and we, we become uh, one with him in the sense, we'll see this in John chapter 17, but we've already seen it where we know him and he knows us just as the father knows the son and the son knows the father. The intimacy and the connection that we have with him by faith, we are in Christ He is the resurrection, therefore we have been raised to walk in newness of life, and one day we will be physically raised in physical bodies because Jesus' body was raised from the dead. There's physicality to the incarnation, to the resurrection, to our resurrection. We're not just wispy spirits floating around in heaven somewhere going to have new bodies free from sin and mourning and crying and pain and disease, coronavirus and political, whatever. We have hope. We have hope. Verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I just love the way he puts this. He uses, oftentimes in in Greek, they use a double negative. And we use a double negative, it results in what? A positive I don't not not like I don't not not like you. Something. But but here when he says he will never die, he will never not ever not die forever. You will not die forever. Which which is another way of saying you're going to live forever. And he says it in both ways. He uh, he says the one who believes in me will live even when you die. You're going to be raised from the dead. And everyone who lives out this resurrection life that you possess today because you believe in me, never, not ever, will you ever die. That he is speaking of the second death. John speaks of this in his revelation numerous times in the book of Revelation. He talks about the second death. You will never experience the second death. You may die physically, but you're not going to be cast into the lake of fire. You'll be raised to to walk in newness of life and you'll be be raised to be with him forever. And that's the hope that we have. And her words in verse 27 are amazing. She says, let me say this first in verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says those words. I, I, I read this passage 
always at graveside services and memorial services. And whenever I get to this point where I say, do you believe this? I have to tell the people that are listening, this is not me saying this to you. These are the words of Jesus. He's asking, do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that by believing in him, you will live forever? Do you believe that by believing in him, you will never die, but you will be raised from the dead? Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes. Yes, Lord, I have believed. I have come to this settled belief, and I continue to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What an incredible statement of faith. This woman knows her Savior. She knows theology. The woman at the well and the woman and, and Martha, these are substantial women. Go girls, yeah? <laughs> women in the book of John, it's amazing. In fact, her, her, her statement of faith pretty much parallels, it's a, it's a case study of the purpose of the book, which is this, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. She jumps ahead to the purpose of the book. She's got it nailed down. Even before her brother is raised. That is her hope. A.T. Robertson, uh, the great Greek grammar, grammar said this. She had a historic, excuse me, a heroic faith and makes now her own confession of faith in words that outrank those of Peter in Matthew 16, because she makes hers with her brother dead now four days with the hope that Jesus will one day raise him. This is a woman of faith. Two final thoughts here. Our hope is not in a holiday, but in the Holy One who came to rescue us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue us. The hope for Christmas is, is so much greater than what you can ever imagine. So the second thought is this. Raise your expectations for Christmas. Don't lower them because you're going to get a, uh, you know, an air fryer or whatever. And, oh, I got an air fryer and it's not going to satisfy. And all the things that I said. No, raise your expectations beyond those things. Your hope for Christmas should be greater. Because our hope for Christmas is found in the person of Christ. The hope beyond the grave. Hope of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us where our hope lies. In the resurrection. He is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 it says this. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, like Lazarus. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. He has been raised. Our hope is in the resurrection, and even the Lord's Supper looks forward to that. And I want you to get ready with the, with the Lord's Supper 
Because the, the Lord's Supper is looking backwards at what Christ has done. And because of what he has done by dying, by giving his body and shedding his blood, we will be raised from the dead one day as well. And so will all of your loved ones who have placed their hope in him and have fallen asleep in Jesus. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Take the bread and the cup and pray with me, please. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We thank you that that is fulfilled in the the baby coming to Bethlehem and the Son of God who will return in the clouds. We thank you for his body and his blood, this bread and this cup, which represent our hope for eternity. And as we sing and as we reflect, we thank you, Father, for giving us something that is much, much greater than Christmas, a hope of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.